Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I'm recording this from a hotel in Bogota. I'm on my way to British Nationals. Just wrapped up a couple of unbelievable weeks in Valle de Bravo. Uh, did Marco's uh, XC Sky Race. That was the second edition of that. Uh, he's doing that every year. Marco, of course, is in the XOps this year and put on a really, really fun uh, comp that's really designed, instead of race to goal, it's really designed to reward the best pilot for going big and flying fast. And he has all kinds of uh, algorithms to uh, and handicaps for different wings. So in theory, you could be on a bay wing and, and win the race. Uh, hats off to Matt Hendy who won that. And it was a really terrific race. We had six days of awesome flying and then a day off. And then the Monarca, 150 pilots in the Monarca. Uh, Monarca as always was just amazing. Uh, they put me on the task committee again, which was super fun with Gunnar Sebu and Enrique Figueroa. Uh, we just had a blast and uh, the flying was was super epic. Uh, a few days of, of some pretty big OD, but it never went too big. And yeah, another six days. So just terrific. Um, well, before we get into the show with Adrian Garza, who is uh, super inspiring, he got his actually went to, to he's actually one of Marco's ex supporters this year in the race and then. Um, he is, uh, he went through his P2 stuff and got his 30 flights with Marco about a year ago. And then on his 31st flight, went up and hiked one of the major volcanoes in Mexico and has been kind of volcano hopping. So it's really inspiring. I thought really cool to see somebody with such low hours, uh, chasing things really neat. And he's, you know, he's got a lot of altitude and climbing experience and, uh, sounds like he's doing it really safely. And I think you're just going to enjoy this. It's not really on the technical aspect of flying, um, but more just the inspiring side of what you can do with the wing, um, even with very low hours. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Before we get into the show though, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of my observations. Um, one, there was uh, in that two-week span at least uh, 16 major incidences. So, and by major, I mean like a reserve toss. Uh, most of the reserve tosses were, you know, were pretty benign, other than people hanging in trees for a long time in some cases. But there were also some pretty major injuries uh, and some evacs, uh, some helicopter evacs. And uh, the percentage is not great. I think this was, uh, you know, was, there was quite a bit of high pressure, which makes Valle even more spicy than it typically is. But um, I have some thoughts on why some of this is happening. Uh, one, people are rusty, you know, so they're coming into a, a place that is uh, notoriously pretty sharp air and pretty dynamic. And there's a lot of trees and you don't have an, uh, often have a lot of room to work. So uh, between cloud base and the trees. So people usually haven't been flying in quite a few months, so they're not really on their game. Um, Vi's high altitude, Mexico City's high altitude. So you're coming and you're more tired and less sharp than you typically are. Uh, often hydration's one of the problems. Um, people are tired and they're often dealing with maybe a little bit of an off stomach, that kind of thing. Um, so all those factors for certainly play a role and just something to be really aware of when you travel and go to fly. Um, <clears throat> being not current is a huge one. I always talk about that in the winter as you're coming into spring, you know, when thermals are sharp, you have to treat it kind of like being in the spring. So. Uh, you know, even if it's a comp, you're there for a comp, just recognize that you might not be totally on your game. 
The other thing I saw a lot of, uh, and this is distressing, is just way, way too many people flying wings that are above their skill level and above their hours level. Um, this is a topic that we talk about on the show again and again and again and again. And uh, most of the people I talk to, the you know, the experts, the really high hours folks are always talking about not moving up too fast. Well, way too many people are moving up too fast. Uh, in the Monarca where we had 150 pilots, you know, the gaggles are obviously really big. And, you know, a lot of the folks that are on wings above their level are spending the whole time looking up at their wing and not looking around at the other pilots and makes it super dangerous in the gaggles, um, makes gaggle flying pretty sketchy. Uh, very different than in PWCs where everybody's on the same wing, uh, you know, pretty much. And everybody's really confident and they're looking around and I'm not saying looking up at your wing is a bad thing. I, I do it all the time, but you, uh, if you're just staring at it because you're nervous about it, you're on the wrong wing. That's, you know, you should be able to feel it uh, as well as seeing it. And um, just something to think about. I'm seeing a lot of people on Xenos and uh, and the Peak 4, which, you know, just a couple years ago was one of the hottest, you know, it was a hot comp wing. Okay, so it's now a more mellower comp wing, but it's still a comp wing. Uh, the Zeno is a two-liner. It can be definitely, I mean, Farmer got third overall in the Monarca. Uh, you can make that thing go really good. Um, and just because it's a stable two-liner or people say really good things about it, you know, if you're not getting 200, 250 hours a year and you don't have years and years of experience and a whole bunch of SIV, like a whole bunch of SIV on your belt, that is way too hot of a wing for you. So uh, just because it doesn't blow out super easily, you hardly ever see those wings go. That doesn't mean that they're quote unquote safe for you. So um, be thinking about that. Uh, the other thing that I still find incredibly distressing is how many people either don't have uh, satellite trackers or are still on spots. Uh, you all know that I'm sponsored by Garmin, but this is not a sponsored thing. Um, you know, there were quite a few people that were hung up in trees for hours and hours and hours without cell service. So I'm, I'm always hearing, oh, well, I've got my three little messages that I can send out with spot. Well, big deal. I mean, you're in a tree, wouldn't it be nice to communicate, hey, I'm okay, or hey, I have a broken leg, or hey, I need a helicopter, or hey, I don't, um, or hey, I need really need some water. There was one guy that spent till 3 a.m. and got pretty hypothermic um, because he didn't have a way to communicate. And so, you know, you, you need an inReach. I mean, we, we travel, we buy uh, very expensive gear. Cost is just a ridiculous excuse that you don't have an inReach. Um, you can two-way text. Uh, people know exactly where you are and exactly what the problem is, and they can pull in the correct kind of resources. So if you are a pilot and you're flying cross-country, there's just no excuse. You need to have one of these, but you also need to know how to use it. Uh, there's, If you go to my website, cloudbasedmayhem.com, and just put in inReach best practices or inReach, you'll find articles on kind of how to set them up and uh, how to best use them. But there was quite a bit of confusion. I landed one day in the sky race to help two people that had thrown the reserves together. And uh, Revis and Matt Henze, Revis uh, Gray and Matt Henze were above me. And so they immediately gave me uh, Latin long locations. I dropped a, I dropped a waypoint into my inReach, uh, changed the Latin long to, to match and walked directly to them. It was super easy. It took only a few minutes. Um, they were both totally non-events. Um, but a lot of people don't know how to do that. One, you got to make sure your group is in the same uh, lat long format. So uh, I recommend 
decimal degrees. Uh, that's pretty standard for emergency uh, folks. Um, you know, if you're in the PwC or something, they're still in UTM. You know, so you, if you're in a comp that asks for something else, obviously you've got to switch and you want to switch all your instruments to that. But um, decide in your group what you're going to use. And again, I recommend decimal degrees. It's just the, it's the easiest what Google Earth is automatically in. Uh, that works pretty well. And then if you need to know either your location or uh, or if you're flying over somebody's head that you've seen gone in and you need to send that location to somebody else, the easiest way to do it is just drop a waypoint. It's got the little waypoint icon. You can do it with your device or you can do it with your phone through EarthMate. Um, and then bang, it just shows it to you. you. Drop it and then you click on it. You can name it. And like in this case, I did pilot one and pilot two because I didn't know who the victims were. Uh, and then if you need to edit the Latin long, you can do it right there. So like in, in other words, if somebody is giving, giving you the Latin long, just drop a waypoint, open it up, and then you can edit. You can put the numbers that they give you in there, which is what I did. So make sure you know how to do that. Um, the other thing is what I see a lot of is like the first day, like, oh yeah, we need to, we need to make sure we all have each other's inReach addresses. And then, then you go and launch. Um, inReach addresses are, are still very confusing uh, to some people. The inReach address for your device. So like for mine is mail35 at inReach.garmin.com. Um, that doesn't mean that the outside world can email me at that address. That's inReach to inReach. So the easiest way for people to have your devices, uh, 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 address is just send them a message so before launch get everybody together get your 10 pilots your 10 buddies together make sure a you're all on xc fine so you've sent dave your dave wheeler your money and you're on there and and he's got your your share page or your spot share page but hopefully in reach share page um, make sure your share page is set up correctly so that takes just a couple minutes you go to garmin and you log into your account and make sure you've got that you know people can message you and people can see where you are um, some pretty basic stuff there that you just need to change. It's real obvious. Um, and then send everybody a message from your device uh, to their phone and then also to their device. And then th you've got the message thread. You never need to worry about what their address is ever again. It's in your message thread. It's right there. Uh, the other thing that a ton of people are not doing is when they end their flight, they just turn their tracking off. They never put in an okay message. Um, that's also super simple. It's in your message threads. If you go to messages, you'll see one of them is called map share. It's always there. It's automatically with the device. You just type in, okay, bam. Or you can just do it with the okay message uh, on the device itself. So make sure you do that because otherwise people are, if they're watching XC Fine, they're not really sure what's going on. Is this, you know, do they need help? Because if it just stops tracking, you could be in a tree, you could be hurt, you could be dead and nobody knows. Um, and so make sure you put that okay in there and then make sure you talk to one another about, you know, what you guys are doing. Um, and, uh, and you make sure you have, you know, each other's radio frequencies and all that kind of basic stuff, but be looking out for one another. Cause I think the, the you know, what people think is they go to VIA and there's so many people that, you know, somebody's looking after you, but all those people are like, well, somebody else is looking after them. And so I think a lot of people just get left out there and, uh, and those trees down in Valle swallow you up and you disappear. Both those reserves that uh, that I saw go in and I landed to help, I watched them go right to the ground and I couldn't see them again. And that's why I landed. I was like, I don't trust the radios. They're probably all hopped up on adrenaline, even though they're saying, okay, I want to go make sure they're all right. So anyway, some things to think about. Uh, lastly, 
Um, there were several folks that got into kind of auto rotation situations, uh, which makes reserve tossing pretty hard to do. And often the reserve goes right into the wing. Um, SIV, if you've done it, hopefully you've done it, um, over the water with an instructor in your ear and all that kind of thing is way, way different than SIV in a real situation. Um, your adrenaline starts pumping. Uh, you may or may not be thinking very clearly depending on how much SIV you've done. Um, and you're in really spicy air. You're not over the lake in totally still air where you're just going out to glide out where, you know, initiating a flat spin is just no big thing. Um, you initiate flat spin 500 feet off the deck in a big massive thermal because you hit too much break. Um, you might have a pretty, you know, you could cascade there and end up in an auto rotation situation pretty fast, which is really dynamic. So I want to encourage all of you to do more, if you can, more SIV. Um, get on a wing that's your, that you're really comfortable with and really practice it and practice it practice it. I had a situation in one of the race days in Menarca. We were pushing out uh, just after the start out to Deviz uh, in a notorious place where the air is notoriously rough and uh, had a pretty good tip tuck on one side. And I went to fish, when I went to fish that one out, had a huge whack on the other side. And I looked up and I thought, wow, there's not very much of this wing open. And, uh, and I was kind of wondering if it was still flying and took a quick look at the ground. And I was only about 300 feet off the tree. So I had, I had to make a decision really quickly to either throw or deal with this. Um, and then I heard my, my Vario just doing that whole plunge sound and, and realized I was like instantly in a parachutal situation. And, you know, if I hadn't had, you know, so much practice over the water and done so much SIV, that definitely would have been a reserve situation. So I just stalled it really fast, let it go. It went a little bit asymmetrically, had to come back to deep stall and then let it go again and flew away and got in a thermal and kept racing. It was a non-event. Um, but you need to, that stuff, especially when you're that low, needs to be automatic. And I think another thing that people are doing, and I see this over and over and over again, is, you know, Rev has talked about this in his podcast, and it's so valuable. At every stage of your flight, you know, even if it's a 10-hour flight, you need to be constantly aware of right now I'm at 1,000 feet, right now I'm at 5,000 feet, right now I'm at 200 feet. You need to know exactly how much height you have. So if something goes wrong, you know approximately how much time you have before it's a, it's a throw situation. You know, like in that situation for me, I had a few seconds. And if that didn't work, I really needed to throw. Uh, you know, 300 feet, you've got almost nothing. So for somebody else, if they if that had happened, uh, that's an instant throw scenario. And there were just, there were a lot of people that threw uh, this week and were fine. And there were quite a few people who didn't. Some of them were fine, um, but some of them were not. And so that's just testament to reserves. They really do work, but you got to get them out. Uh, we've said that many times on the show, but just want to reiterate that. All right, cool. Well, enough seriousness. Uh, let's get into this very fun talk with Adrian Garza. Uh, the sound is is tough here. We were sitting in the backyard up by Evandro, uh, where we were staying for the for the comp. And there's trucks, and there's dogs, and there's chickens, and it's just classic Mexico. But I thought that was kind of fun. So uh, we've done our best here to drown most of that out. But uh, there is going to be some background noise. But I think you're going to find this really inspiring and uh, volcano hopping in Mexico. Uh, please enjoy this, this very cool talk with my friend Adrian Garza. Thank you. 
Adrian, welcome to the Mayhem. So good to uh, meet you, spend a little bit of time with you this week. And uh, I'm sorry you couldn't join us for the Sky Race. That was a blast. But yeah. sh shout out to Marco for putting on a good comp. That was super fun. And Valle came through as it always does. Six great days of flying. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you're uh, doing some really cool stuff as a very new pilot. So we're going to talk mm -hmm. volcanoes and X-Alps because you're going to be supporting Marco in the race. Yeah. And uh, learning and babies and family and living in Mexico City and, and chasing it. So yep. uh, I thought maybe where we'd start uh, mm -hmm. off the top here is, is just have you tell us a story about your most memorable flight. Because... Uh, we just did this for the last 20 minutes and the recording wasn't working so we're doing it again but yeah, we did a little dress rehearsal we did a little just, dress rehearsal just for kicks yeah yeah but uh pretty amazing you know, t tell again that the history of the 30 flights and then going out and doing your first one off of a, a big volcano for sure uh, thanks for having here having you here uh, gavin i'm super excited um so yeah i learned to fly here in in valle um, my, my wife had been on a trip to Peru and, and she did a tandem flight in Lima and loved it. Um, so she got me into this and I'm super glad she did. Uh, we learned to fly together here with Marco. And from the start, uh, when she came up with the idea, um, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, I'm, I'm already climbing these uh, big mountains and I would love to be able to fly off the summit, right? So that was uh, kind of my main motivation when I started. You know, it's, it's evolved since then, but that's how it began. Um, so after, you know, my 30 flights um, and my practical and, and theoretical exam to get my license, you know, flight number 31, uh, so my first solo flight, real solo flight, was going to be off of uh, one of the big volcanoes of Mexico City, which uh, is a 5,230-meter-tall uh, volcano. It's about two hours from Mexico City. So I had been uh, preparing for that with, you know, the equipment that I would need, um, checking out the, the weather forecasts. Uh, I had already been on the mountain, you know, many times uh, by myself um, and, you know, camping out on the summit and, and I did uh, circumnavigation of the mountain, so I, I knew it pretty well. And it's pretty accessible from Mexico City for like a weekend climb. It's a two-hour drive to base camp, which is about 3,900 meters. And then from there to the summit, it's probably like between four and five hours. And all in all, it's like a 10-hour day if you, if you walk back down too. Um, so I really wanted to fly off of that uh, volcano. I knew that other people had, had done that before. Um, and I wanted uh, to do that as well. So uh, I got out there on a Saturday. Uh, I took it easy so I could, you know, get used to the the altitude, and started early and at night. Um, when I got to the summit, uh, you know, it, it took me about maybe an, an hour to get everything ready and, and be ready to to take off, just because, uh, you know, I've been climbing for four or five hours with uh, with a pack on that weighed maybe 10 kilos, and you know, I had to get rehydrated, you know, have some food. And, you know, as I was saying, you know, at, at that altitude, sometimes just tying your shoelaces uh, in your boots can can get you out of breath. Um, so anything that's usually done, uh, you know, quite easily uh, is a lot more complicated over there. And, of course, you want to have your head clear 
Um, so you can judge the conditions and, and make sure you, you check your equipment and all of that. Did you have a, a lot of time at altitude, like a lot of climbing experience and that kind of thing? Because I know it could be, mm-hmm. like when I, when I was first learning, uh, i just going to interrupt here for yeah, a sec, yeah. but when I was first learning and just getting my P2, so kind of going through mm-hmm. the same phase that you were, it was like the last sign-off flight that I had, mm-hmm. and I was with some friends that were good pilots and then my instructor, and, uh, you know, it was middle of the day and it was hot and it wasn't that high. This is outside of Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. So nothing like what you're talking about. Um, but like I just, he, my instructor was kind of watching me and I was really having a hard time. Like even just kind of like, do I turn right or left? He could tell that I was just kind of confused yeah. and I was just dehydrated and it was hot mm-hmm. and I was kind of out of it. But I now after years of flying i would recognize it i'd hope but at the time i didn't really and he was he just walked over to me really nicely and he said gavin today you're done you know he just knew it you <laughs> that's know that's it so did Good you call. did you yeah. feel pretty comfortable that you kind of <clears throat> knew you know the difference between a little bit of altitude sickness mm-hmm. and just kind of being out of it yeah for um yeah so i'd been on the mountain before uh, many times and um like a year before that a year and a half before i went on a climbing trip to peru and, and climb the 6,000 meter peak. Mm-hmm. So I, I really trained hard for that. Um, so I summited that same mountain like four times in, in a month on the weekend straight. And, and when I started doing that, I, I got into really the literature about, you know, uh, acclimatization and, and training for altitude and all that. Uh, I read a lot of books and, 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 and articles. And, and my secret weapon for that was, uh, a hypoxic generator that I have at home. Mm. So it's a little machine, um, and it's it makes uh, probably the same amount as no, uh, of noise as like a like a standalone air conditioning system. And what it does basically is it takes uh, oxygen out of the air and it substitutes nitrogen into it, uh, which is you know what most air is is mostly made up of anyway. So it, it you don't it's not uh, toxic or anything. And you can use that to simulate altitude. Wow. Um, so, since I knew that I wanted to do these uh, hike and fly trips, um, I, I, I used that beforehand. And I had used it before when I went to Peru. So, before going to Peru, I, I slept in a, a little plastic uh, tent that covers my body from like my chest up. And you sleep in that and, and you're able to s- gradually uh, increase the altitude to where you feel comfortable and you know what you're depending on what your objectives are so already in mexico city we're pretty high as it is i mean it's like 2200 meters which is, is like almost no it is as high as aspen or yeah. higher than denver you know it's, it's yeah. pretty high so then if you put you know 2000 more meters on top of that you're already at 4200 um so you start gradually increasing uh, the assimilated altitude and i, ha- I have a um, like a pulse oximeter I wear before going to bed and I check my pulse and my uh, my, my pulse ox reading uh, in the morning as well and, and try to keep it like uh, under 90 and above 80 uh, and so gradually when you start using it um, you start to see that at the same simulated altitude you have a higher pulse ox reading and that's when you know your body's starting to get used to it and you use that to calibrate you know the intensity of of your your acclimatization training um so that uh that whole period really made me aware of of, i mean the all the theory behind that and and also more importantly as you mentioned like how does my body feel when it's starting to get hypoxic right yeah uh 
And with that same machine, you can also do hypoxic intervals. So you wear a mask on your face and I can like pump it up all the way to 8,000 meters and just breathe the air for five minutes. And then uh, you take it off and give it a rest for maybe two minutes, five minutes, and then put it back on. Or you can do the same thing while you're doing exercise, like on a treadmill or something like that. Mm. <clears throat> so that really gives you a lot of practice for actually you know, observing and, and feeling the effects of, of hypoxia and, and altitude. Mm. Um, and that really helped me out on that trip to Peru. And, and for doing these hike and fly trips, I started sleeping in that tent for like uh, six weeks before I, I planned to go uh, out to do it. So it gives me a really big advantage when I got up there and you can really feel it. I mean, your, your resting heart rate uh, really drops. Um, your, your body actually produces more red blood cells um, and you just have uh, way more aerobic capacity than, than you would beforehand. And your, your aerobic threshold really goes up so you can push harder before you start to feel uh, a, a lack of oxygen. It's a very cool Tim Her Tim Ferriss type hack. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's super useful. I mean, I know like some I know, like Michael Phelps uh, uses yeah. something like that, and uh, the U.S. soccer team uh, trained with one of those things before they came up to Mexico City for a match because oh, there's an altitude difference. Uh, so a lot of uh, you know big athletes uh, use it, and um, I think this is probably gonna be used um, uh, more often, and you know in, in, in mountaineering for sure. Mm. There's some agencies that are starting to rent out this kind of equipment to their clients for some like uh, um, like uh, big trips, uh, big mountains in the Himalaya or in the Andes, and and they, it really allows them to shorten the time that it takes to, to you know to go on one of these trips. So, so you don't have to acclimatize nearly as much when you get there. You're already you've already done a lot of the hard work. Yeah, exactly. So oh. you shave a lot of time off of that, and I think it makes it a lot safer. You know, anytime you're abroad and you're eating different kind of food, uh, even different water source, it can really mess up with your, uh, your gut yep. and, and, and debilitate you as the time goes on. So just having that time shaved off, uh, I think this really makes it a lot safer and a lot more useful. And, and it's like also having uh, like a reserve fuel in the tank in case something goes wrong, you're gonna be a lot more well-equipped and prepared to handle um, you know, something unexpected where you're gonna have to push yourself harder than you thought you would. Hmm. I've yeah. taken you down a really cool <laughs> side road there. We're going to have to come back to that because that's fascinating. And I think yeah. a very applicable. You, maybe you've, you've um, read some of Matt Wilkes' uh, study, yeah, stuff that he's been doing in cross country mm -hmm. with, with uh, Tom Dorlado and, and the, the guys that have been flying a lot in Pakistan and the Himalaya. Mm -hmm. They've done some really fascinating work on those guys because it's, yeah. it's quite different, isn't it, what we do. When you're yeah, thermaling up, you can go up really fast. And yeah. uh, it's, they're finding it, it affects people in really different ways. Pretty yeah. interesting, interesting research there. Okay, well, yeah, back to sure your, uh, back <laughs> to your story. So you're 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 gonna half, you're way less than half the time because you're gonna mm -hmm. be able to fly down. But you're yeah. you're on the ascent that first day. It takes us back to there. Yeah. So I get to the summit and it's uh, pretty early morning. Uh, get everything ready and it's a little windy. Uh, and I had seen people. Well, I've seen the flights of people that had done this before, but the wind is coming in the completely opposite direction. So uh, sort of what I had envis envisioned was you know, useless at that point. So I had to improvise and find another takeoff. Uh, and it worked well and I was able to take off. And, and, and it's, the feeling is, is like, like your very first flight. 
um, where you're nervous, you're super excited, uh, and you want to take it all in. You want uh, you want to have pictures of the flight. You want to have video. You want to look around, um, and you have to fly the wing, of course. Um, so that that made everything just go by really fast. And it was like a 12-minute flight because I just at first I was really uh, you know worried about how the wing would behave close to the volcano, uh, how fast it would sink uh, with, you know, in the air that's a lot less dense up there. Uh, so that was my first experience flying at that height. Um, so a lot of things going on and a lot of excitement and it just went by really fast. What was the wing? Yeah. It was, uh, it was my, my school wing. So since I knew I wanted to do this when I started uh, learning, uh, I got a wing that is an A-wing, it's uh, by 777, it's uh, the D-Lite, so it's like the light version of their deck, which is their, their beginner wing, their school wing. Um, it's really, a, I think it's a really great wing to to start using when you're learning, uh, because it makes ground handling more fun, because it doesn't doesn't weigh as much. Um, and the harness is also a lighter harness, it has you know back protection and uh, like a air uh, uh, protection uh, on the bottom. Um, so yeah, it's an A-wing, which also it's comforting uh, in case you run into some turbulence or something weird. Um, and it's also nice to know that you're not gonna be hitting the ground as fast when you land. Um, because I landed at 3,800 meters, which is still pretty high. Um, so I, th I think it's a good choice for, for, for those kind of situations. I mean, I was able to function as my beginner wing and also as a, I kept it now as, as a hike and fly wing as well. Was there ever any moment, uh, you know, being your 31st flight and your mm -hmm. first flight without an instructor, was there ever a moment you're up there, you're like, what the hell am I doing? Do I know, do I, was there any like proper self-doubt? Uh, not once I was in the air, I was, I was too excited to, to be worried. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but definitely, uh, once I got to the summit, and I mean, not even even before that, I would say, because you're, you're I was hiking alone, and you have like four and a half hours or five hours to just to just uh, have that voice in your head tell you all kinds of things. Yeah. So I had plenty of time to question if if I'm uh, going in over my head or not, if I should do this or not, and. And when it's still dark, you can't really see what the sky looks like. And then when the sun starts coming up, you start trying to observe while you're still hiking and you, you're out of breath and you're a little hypoxic. And uh, so, yeah, for sure, there were uh, a lot of moments where I, where I was constantly checking if, you know, is this still something that, that, uh, that I want to do? Is it still something I want to do? Is, are the conditions still what I expected them to be? Is the wind still look like it's doing what I thought it was going to do? Did, did you kind of have parameters set beforehand like if it's x or x i'm i'm not doing it yeah uh, well your regular like uh, flight check stuff like if, i mean if it's like the weather really changes and it's raining or, or i can't see the landing sure. stuff like that like normal stuff um but also um since i knew it was going to be a little windy if if i couldn't uh if i didn't feel comfortable with with the glider on the summit, even before taking off, I, f I didn't feel like I was gonna be able to handle the, the wing coming up over my head. Uh, I was gonna abort. Or if I couldn't find a place where I, I felt that if something went wrong, 
I would be, I would still be okay. So I wanted to have enough space, uh, you know, behind me. Uh, I wanted to make sure that if uh, in front of me, I could also have time to abort, or if I tripped or something, I, I wouldn't uh, fall off a cliff. Um, so, so all of those things were really on my mind, and uh, the the takeoff that I had in mind wasn't going to work uh, because it, the wind was coming in a different direction. So. It's also part of the reason why it took me an hour to to really get ready, you know, to 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 double check and and also to make sure that I'm still thinking straight. You know, I'm not hypoxic and I'm still uh, convinced, you know, for for an hour straight after being there that I still want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, you know, I'm also you know also worried about you know maybe it's getting late, maybe it's gonna you know get overdeveloped soon, maybe it's gonna get more windy, so you kind of feel rushed. Or is that a temptation to, to be rushed because of that? So it's kind of a finding, finding a balance between taking your time to make sure you're, you're comfortable with the situation and, and not letting yourself get pressured by, uh, you know, changing the possibility of changing conditions, but uh, also being aware of that if conditions change, then you can abort, right? And you have to go up with the mentality and, and the mindset that, that, that you might have to walk down, and that's okay. You have to enjoy, you know, that part of it too. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be a lot of pressure yeah, on sure. yourself. You know. So, I mean, super unusual progression uh, yeah. for for a pilot. Um, and I know that Marco's a really safe, very, very good instructor. I've seen him instruct; he's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you told him about this beforehand. Yeah. Was what was his reaction? What was his? Uh, what are his thoughts? Yeah, so before going on that first flight on Volcano, I, I you know, talked to Marco and I told him what my plan was. And, you know, um, at that point I knew what the forecast said and I told him what I planned to do. And, and he did give me a few tips as well, like, you know, be, be careful of when you land because you're gonna be going to be going fast. faster. Yeah. Uh, you know, practical things like that. Uh, and, you know, send me a message when you land. Um, so, yeah, he was uh, really supportive. And I think it's also, you know, like any any really good instructor or teacher uh, it's really good at at, uh, at at judging what where his students are going stepping out of their you know their their their, their experience level or, or where they should be um, so yeah for sure it's not the typical progression um, and it's not like I had in mind that I wanted you know my first solo flight has to be on a volcano like that's not yeah. the way it happened said, you know, this is something I eventually want to do whenever I'm ready, and whenever my instructor also feels that I'm ready as well. Mm. And by the time, you know, my third and my first solo flight came around, I had already been flying for a while, and, and I kind of did P2 twice because I started a full week, like an intensive course, but I wasn't able to uh, finish, and then I did it again with my wife, so I had more time to train. Mm. I did an SIV as well before that. Uh, so that really uh, helped give me more confidence with wing and, and you know handle those kinds of situations. And I think also I have a, a pretty non-typical background as well. Uh, I think uh, for, for for one thing I've been uh, on these same mountains you know many times by myself and carrying heavy loads as well. So that part wasn't new either. Mm. Uh, and I uh, been into kiteboarding a lot before that. Uh, um, so uh, I mean those two things also really made me. Uh, get used to you know forecasting what the conditions are going to be in different kinds of places and judging on the spot and and always constantly being aware 
that conditions might change and you might have to adapt and maybe your plan is going to have to change or maybe your plan is not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and flying different sizes and kinds of kites, you know, also uh, I think made it easier for me to to be able to feel out uh, the wing in paragliding, even though it's a, you know, a different technique and everything. But sure. I think it helped me uh, progress a little bit faster than I would have otherwise. Um, so I think it was more of a coincidence that by the time it was my first solo flight that I felt uh, that I was ready. And, and, and it worked out. <laughs> so you have this 12-minute flight, and the, yeah. the major thing that strikes you is that's not long enough? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, so then what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool that you can come down in 12 minutes instead of three hours, but uh, it's, it's, you're not looking for efficiency unless you're competing, right? So, so after that, I said, you know, I have, to, I have to do this again, and I have to make it last longer than that, you know? Um, so, you know, the, the advantage of living in Mexico City is that I can, you know, wait for the conditions to, to be right, you know? So if you're flying in your home site, you, can, you have that luxury, and, and you don't have that when when you're traveling, so so I had to take advantage. Um, so I went out there again about a month later, um, and I knew the wind was gonna be hitting uh, the volcano kind of uh, perpendicularly. It's kind of an elongated volcano. And at that time, uh, I thought maybe I would be able to soar for like I don't know maybe 20 minutes close to the glacier. There's two glaciers on on that volcano. And uh, I managed to take off, and I went uh, headed towards the, the, the central glacier, and I was able to soar. Uh, and I did that for like 20 minutes, and I tried to go back uh, to, to see if I could fly over the summit. And I didn't make it, I didn't get the altitude, so I had to turn around. And at that point, I was content. I was satisfied and said, well, this is already a longer flight. Uh, I took some video, <laughs> took some photos, check those boxes you know i feel fine and plus i was starting to get a little cold right because you know uh, wind in your face for for 30 minutes at 5200 meters uh it was probably close to zero degrees celsius and with a uh, hypoxia you, you get colder faster so i said well i might as well go land and when i was at 4600 meters i was crossing over a, a lower part of the volcano again and then I stumbled onto this uh, convergence. So I had the, the sun coming up on the east and then the wind was coming from the west. And, and I hit this thermal and it just uh, shot me up to from 4,600 meters to 5,200 meters again. So back up to where I was when I, when I took off. And I was able to go back to almost the beginning of my flight and soar over the glaciers again for uh, as long as I wanted until you know my fingers started getting cold. I had put on just my liner gloves because I wanted to be able to handle the lines uh, more easily on the takeoff. And I was not expecting to, to be able to stay up there for an hour. So basically I just I got cold and, and, and that's why I had to go land. So it was uh, an, hour, an hour flight versus the 12 minutes from that first one. So. Uh, Winning. That's that's um, my favorite flight so far. Yeah. Wow! Of all the volcanoes you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then and then I understand you did Pico de Orizaba, the one that that Cedar did the yeah. fledgling film about. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So thanks thanks a lot to to Cedar for putting that out there. And I I'd, I'd seen that film 
uh, before I started flying, so that was a big part of motivating me to, to go out and do this. Oh, really? That was the kind of the volcano catalyst? Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, so since, you know, I'm in uh, these, like, uh, like uh, on social media, I'm on these, like, mountaineering groups locally, and somebody saw that and, and posted it out there. It's like, wow, that's, that looks super cool. I have to do that someday. Uh, so between those two flights on Iztaccíhuatl, I, uh, I went to, uh, to fly off Pico de Orizaba. And that's the third highest? It's uh, third highest in, in North America. Yeah. So it's Denali in Alaska, then Mount Logan in Canada, and then Orizaba in Mexico. And it's 5,600 meters, a little yeah. bit more than that. Okay, now about 18,000 feet. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty high. There's a glacier on it as well. And Cedar and, and, and his team, they went up the north face of the glacier. Uh, I went up the south face because I was uh, going uh, alone again. And on the south face, you can get a little bit higher on the approach to to, to your base camp. So instead of starting at 4,200, you start at like uh, 4,500. So 300 meters at that altitude really uh, makes a big difference. Sure. Um, and I got to summit and, and it was really windy. The forecast uh, said, uh, 10 kilometers an hour and then it said 15 and when I was there it, it was definitely more than 15 more, uh, probably closer to uh, 2025 and looking back uh, probably should have uh, walked back down again so I did really uh, question if it was still the, the you know the, the right thing to do and I was also afraid that I would I would get uh, blown back uh, if I lost control of the glider and into the, fall into the crater of the volcano, which is uh, really, really deep, and, and there's, no, there's no way you're getting out of there <laughs> if you fall. Uh, so that was definitely on my mind. So I, I climbed uh, a little lower down on the south slope uh, to a point where I, I felt I had enough distance between me and the crater, so it wasn't that big of a danger anymore. Um, and I would have time to react if something went wrong. So. So I, I took off, and it was not an elegant takeoff, but uh, I think it went okay. And then uh, another mistake here that I was uh, started, uh, well, first thing I did was turn, so I didn't have the crater behind me anymore. And then once uh, I got that done, I started filling with the camera to turn it on, uh, the video camera. And that probably took 20 seconds or less. It's pretty fast. Um, but when I looked back out to my, you know, my flight route that I had planned, uh, I realized that I wasn't going forward at all, basically. Uh, so again, it's it's an A glider, it's a school wing. It's not really meant to, to penetrate, you know, 20 plus kilometer an hour winds. So I was just kind of falling uh, straight down. Uh, and then with the speed bar on, I, I finally started getting some forward motion. Uh, and, uh, but I had to land on the volcano again. I wasn't gonna be able to get down. So at that point it was either I turn left and go out to Veracruz somewhere, and, 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 then, and then we'll see how we get back to the car, or land on the mountain and, and then uh, gather my stuff and just walk, walk back down the rest of the way. So I landed at 4,900 meters. So, and that took like a minute and a half, like 600 meters of, of vertical in a minute and a half. Uh, super fast and then I just uh, packed up my glider and, and walked down the rest of the way and, and I had to kind of traverse across 
to get to the route again and then walk back down. So in the end, it was uh, it would have been faster to just walk down <laughs> once I got to the summit instead of uh, fly down and then traverse and then uh, pack your glider up in the volcanic sand uh, on, a, on an incline and, and, and get back to the car. So, so it's not without its challenges. Yeah, so yeah, it, it sounds really uh, glamorous, right? Yeah, I'd fly off the summit and you're down in, in, in no time. It uh, doesn't always uh, quite work out uh, that way. And what about uh, how are you going about, now that you've done, and we'll get into the, I know you've done many more, but uh, how are you going about forecasting and figuring it out? Because, I mean, these, these mountains are so high, they kind of create their own weather. I mean, I, I know you're launching super early, like right at sunrise, and so, you know, ideally it's pretty mellow conditions. But, um, you know, like in Cedars film in the fledglings, it was mm -hmm. a little windy up there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I know that they spent a lot of time down here before even attempting it because it's yeah. just windy day after day after day. Yeah. Um, take, take me through the process of there because like, you're also a little limited on time, right? You're you're doing the weekend thing, correct? Yeah. 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 So I only have uh, usually the weekends available for that. Um, but the, the big thing for me is you know, having enough, enough experience specifically on these mountains to where I can... Um, check the forecast and then like I, I don't ever commit to going out there until like the, the night before um, so I'm ready and you know I'm packed and I, I know I'm well trained and, and, and I made time for it but if the day before that uh, things really change then then I'll, I'll, I'll wait for another another time another weekend and what's the you did these the the first two in january you said it was like january uh -huh. and then so is is it now is it is the season for doing these volcanoes in the winter yeah i think i think now it's probably when you have the the better chance of 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 actually being able to fly off the summits uh so here we have kind of two seasons in mexico city it's it's like rainy season and dry season so the mountaineering season uh, really coincides with uh, with the flying season, mm -hmm. so that's perfect. Um, so you have a really low probability of of, of, of big thunderstorm systems, uh, really big overdevelopment stuff like that. So it's good that those two things coincide here, at least. Um, and but yeah, I mean, in the end, you always have to be be willing to to walk down if, if things change. And, and I always try to check the forecast at, at the last moment. And the whole way up, I'm trying to, I'm looking around and seeing uh, what, what the weather's doing. If it still looks like what I, what I thought it was gonna do. And, and if it changes, then, then you just And are you down. using paragliding specific forecasting, like XC skies and that kind of thing? Or are you using more like NOAA? And okay. I, I imagine these mountains don't have like wind cams on top of them. No, they, I mean, they have some of them have some webcams, so I mean, you can at least look okay. to see if there's clouds yep. uh, there, and and uh, and I use uh, this website called Mount, Mountain Forecast, and, and I think they use the data from GFS. Yep. Uh, so I think that's accurate enough, and I try to you know, check what what there's going to do at, on the summit, and then uh, and then lower down as well, and also just I mean, like any like paragliding flight in, in a new place. Trying to look at the broader weather system, see if there's anything weird in the area. And like here, we have hurricanes on both sides of the country. So, if there's a hurricane on the other side of, of of Mexico, then I'll stay away from from those kinds of plans. Yeah. So just make sure that everything's 
uh, kind of mellow all around uh, in, in the broader region as well. So yeah, windy also helps. Yeah. Um, but uh, for me, uh, my forecast with, with the GFS data has been reasonably accurate as, as long as you check it like every day and, and up to like the last minute possible. So, I mean, to me, they're all successes, you know, that even the walking down are in some ways more successes. But what, what's your uh, what's your win loss ratio right now for you know, how many have you done and, and how many have you had to walk down? I have a, I've only walked down once. Great. And, and I've flown uh, six times on the high volcanoes. Um, so that was two of the the first one was the you did that twice uh-huh and then orizaba and what are the other ones and then the other ones are another uh, volcano called la malinche okay which is like 4600 meters uh and, and there i flew straight down it's, it's getting cloudy uh, another one is uh, uh nevado de toluca which we can right see here. from here yeah. from valle yeah and that was just like a really super short flight uh from the side of the crater back to the inside the crater because it was also really cloudy so i have to do that again sometime mm-hmm. and then the the last one i did was also on on, on east Axiwatl, um the first volcano i flew from but from a different uh side of the mount of the volcano so even like way past the summit on the normal route it's like on the it's like a well they say it's like a a woman that's lying down it's what the form looks like and the summit is on the chest and this other summit is like past the head, like mm-hmm. on the other side. So it's kind of like a separate summit and it's like 4,660 meters. But the approach is from the north, from a completely different side. And um, I didn't, I don't know of anyone that has flown there before. And, uh, and I was looking for something that I could do like on a, as a day trip without uh, have to, having to camp out in the mountain. So this I can do from like starting from Mexico City at like 5 a.m go out, hike uh, up to 4,600 meters, fly, and then come back on the same day. Um, so it's kind of a practical reason why I looked for that, and it ended up being a place where nobody had flown before. And um, and that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah. So tell me about, yeah, right about when you got this obsession, if I've got my math right, you've got a two-month-old, so that was right about yeah. when your wife got pregnant. You guys learned to fly together. Yeah. Let's talk about that whole dynamic a little bit. Yeah. Like, she... Um, it, was she also into the volcano thing, or was she more flying Valle? Or, yeah. And and then since you've had this baby, who's now two months old, how does is that? Do you foresee that changing things much? Yeah, she she's uh, she's been super supportive, and we we learned to to fly together was also really you know a really cool way for us to you know to spend time together and, and do something fun. So on the weekends we would come out to Valle and. And you know, uh, be be out here by ourselves. I mean, and with the other students, and, sure. and it was a really good time. It's really good for us as a couple. Um, so yeah, if 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 you're if your significant other is a paraglider pilot as well, that's uh, uh, really makes things uh, work. Um, and then and then when she got pregnant last year on February, and and she hasn't flown since. Um, so now I'm, I'm working on what would be the best way for her to get back, back on that horse, um, and having the the two month old uh, definitely uh, uh, makes uh, is a factor in, in, in the whole uh, risk evaluation part of 
these flights. Do you find that it, it, it has, it is, are you thinking things, are you thinking differently <clears throat> about risk and, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think for sure. Um, so that last flight I did from, from, from this other volcano um, as a day trip, that was in late November, well, we're in January now. And I mean, this was uh, the unknown, right? So n nobody had flown there, I was by myself again. And, and I had been on that mountain once before, so I, I, I tried to climb it without my gliding, like paragliding equipment, just to, to get to know the route and get to know like the possible like takeoffs and, and not have any pressure of, of trying to, to fly off that same day where you're just getting to know the place. Mm -hmm. um, but when I got there with, with my equipment, um, you know, the, the takeoff that I thought I would use, it really didn't seem to, to be, to, to work. There was not much wind, so uh, I was gonna have to wait for, you know, a little bit of a gust to take off, and I didn't have room behind me um, so that I could run. So I wasn't gonna be able to run, and then it was gonna be a kind of a, a step into uh, the void. You know, it's, like it's a, a cliff big, launch kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, a big cliff right in front. Um, so I had the equipment out and I had my lighter glade like laid out in front of me and and then that you know the being a parent thing was on my mind right so I said you know is this is this really uh, worth it right so I just um, you know I can always walk back down and then I said okay well I'm gonna try and and get the glider over my head and if I can keep it over my head for 30 seconds like under control perfectly under control mm. then I'll, I'll take off and if, if I don't then well, I'll pack up and we'll see what happens after that and mm. uh, so I, I, I tried to get the glider up and and I, I wasn't able to keep it under control uh, I think I'd, I should do more ground handling I think it really helps in those situations uh, but then I said you know I'm gonna pack up and then it's also a lot of pressure because packing up your glider and then walking around carrying your equipment to look for another possible uh, takeoff it, it, it's a massive effort at that altitude and at that place it's also really rocky so it's not like you can just like carry it over your shoulder uh, like you would when you're about to launch on, on, on your home site so I had to really pack it all the way up uh, so the more efficient you are with packing and unpacking also helps so I said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for another site, and and if I don't find something that's uh, safer, then I'll just walk down, and uh, and it took me like uh, maybe an hour more, uh, and and uh, and I found a place that was uh, like way safer. I had uh, plenty of room in front of me. It was it wasn't uh, rocky. It was sandy, so it was, it was a lot safer. And there was some snow, so I could put the glider on the snow. I didn't have to worry about the lines getting caught on the rocks, which happened on, on, on the previous site. Um, so all that was, you know, because partly because I was, you know, thinking about uh, uh, having a, a one-month-old at the time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So it, it does factor in for sure. Tell me about uh, your relationship with Marco and and kind of preparing for the X Alps. Uh, when I was down here last year, so for a year ago. Uh, and he and I were flying together in the Menarca, and he mentioned that he was mm -hmm. probably going to apply. And I was really excited to see that he, he got in this year. Yeah. Um, so were you friends before you did the instruction stuff with him? Or did you guys know each other before then? And, and take me through, you know, how, how that all came about. Because mm -hmm. that's a, it's a big commitment. Yeah. Um, 
it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But it's uh yeah, I mean you're 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 gonna be going to Europe for I imagine more hopefully more than just the race, but uh yeah, yeah it's a big commitment. Yeah, it is. It is a big commitment in, uh, commitment time wise and you know, all the preparation and all that. And so yeah, Marco I met him um when when I started uh, learning to fly with him. So okay. I, I didn't know him before that. And um uh, and when we, when I was still uh, taking lessons with him, uh, we we started talking about uh, about maybe going on a like hike and fly together. Um, so we kind of started talking about that, and, and and he was interested in in, in the mountaineering aspect of it. And of course, I was still uh, learning. I'm always still learning, but at that point, I was more of a more of a beginner. And we just we never made it uh, work because you know. His weekends is when he has you know, the most work, and, and my weekends is when I can go out and do this stuff. So it's hard to make the schedules work. Um, hopefully we, we get to do that uh, soon, or before the X Alps. Um, but that kind of I started developing uh, as I was still uh, a student of his. And, and when he asked me you know, if I wanted to, to, to be part of his team on, on the X Alps, like, I didn't hesitate for a moment. You know, it was just yeah, yeah you of course, you know. Yeah. Well, we'll f- figure out how this is gonna work later. And, and who and, who else is his team? Is he? Is, how many people? Um, so his his main supporter is is also a former student of his, and he's French. Um, he's gonna be coming down a lot later this month to to buy it to fly. So we'll have some time to 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 work on our plans and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, He's spelled his name is spelled almost like mine, but in French, so Adrien. Oh. Um, and, the, and then there's me as a secondary supporter, and then uh, we have uh, we have Fink, Hector from uh, from Eduardo's uh, yeah. team in Xperia. So he brings uh, a lot of experience to the table. Yeah, I'll um, be helping with weather forecasting and, and, and with getting the van to the right place. Um, and we have uh, another uh, former student of Marcos, an Argentinian who flies flies here, and he's helping with you know the wow, the budgeting team. and and kind of uh, you know the, the sponsorship uh, search and, and those kind of things okay. that, that to do beforehand, and and hopefully he'll 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 be out there with us as well, um, help drive the van and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, three three of uh, three of us on the team are former students of his. Wow, uh, and the, and then uh, Hector brings a lot of experience. Uh, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a pretty good combination. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys will have a blast. Yeah. So uh, you're a year into this volcano hopping. Um, <laughs> what's what's kind of on the radar? You know, do, just more. You got a lot of volcanoes down here. Yeah. But is that? And then also, what what other kind of um, you know, flying, are you pretty engaged in right now? Is it mostly the hike and fly because you just got the weekends or are you still, are you doing a lot of training here in Valle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when I started uh, paragliding, I, I had, you know, this, this idea of what paragliding was from before. And I, di- I didn't know, I had, I didn't have the slightest idea of, you know, the possibilities that, uh, you know, cross country flying on a paraglider. I thought you could just soar on the coast, like I did in Lima and fly down a, a tall place and that's it. Uh, but and as soon as I started learning, you know, that's when I got the idea, well, I don't, I don't just want to fly down, I want to be able to thermal and, and enjoy and fly around the mountains. And I want to keep trying to do those kinds of flights, like from, from this other peak I, I flew off, I think it, it, there, it's 
should be possible to thermal and then go up higher over the main summit of the, of, of the volcano of Ista and above the head of the volcano, which is a summit that's really hard to, uh, to climb, climb to because it's pretty dangerous now. There, there's less ice. Um, so I think those are the kind of flights that, that I want to do on the volcanoes. Um, so kind of combining my initial uh, you know, aspiration of flying down with, with what I've learned from thermaling and, and just starting into cross country and, and, and then uh, doing some volbiv later. Like, mm. uh, uh, it's for, also part of what uh, attracts me to, to you know, being uh, a supporter in the X-Alps and getting to know the place. Um, and, and seeing uh, what all the pilots do out there and, and doing something like that by myself sometime. Um, maybe not in a race, but uh, you know, in a more of a relaxed uh, <laughs> volbit trip. And yeah, just since I've been uh, flying, I mean, looking at what other people are doing around the world and what the things that you've been doing in Alaska and in the Canadian Rockies and all that. And then Antoine Girard and, and Damien, who was on your show recently, I mean, what they're doing is, is incredible. So yeah, I mean, that's that's next level. Yeah, oh, I mean, the Volbiv and, and high altitude mountaineering. Uh, that I think that's I'm really excited to see what, what where that leads. Uh, but for me, it's you know more uh, thermaling uh, over over the summits of the volcanoes and and, and trying to do some Volbiv. Cool, Adrian, I appreciate it. I think we got to get this gear out of the rain and uh, and go get registered for Menarca, um, but cool stories and uh i'll be watching with fascination uh if you tick more of these off and uh look forward to doing some fun stuff with you in the alps here in june yeah, at the sure, race that'll be fantastic um i think you're going to really enjoy that it's a precious experience it sure and, is uh, but thank you man i appreciate it oh, likewise thank you gavin Well, hope you enjoyed that. As always, if you're getting something out of the cloud-based mayhem, uh, please support it. There are a number of ways you can do that. You can share it with your friends on social media. You can blog about it. You can talk about it on the way up to launch. Uh, and you can support us financially. You'll find the places uh, to do that on cloudbasedmayhem.com. and do it on a one-off through PayPal or Venmo or through crypto. Uh, and you can also support us on a regular basis. Uh, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show, and you can do that through patreon.com forward slash cloud-based mayhem, uh, where you'll be also rewarded to do so. And uh, there's more bonus content there, like shows with Kriegel and, uh, and shows with other Patreon supporters. And so uh, get on there and check that out. We've also got t-shirts and hats and all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you go to the my website, cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can also find the store where you can uh, buy those Patagonia t-shirts uh, with our logo and fly more, uh, talk less on the back. Those are pretty fun. And the uh, recaps hats that Annika makes. Many of you know Annika. Awesome recaps made out of recycled materials. They're just bitching. Every single one of them is unique. Just got a whole new load of those and a whole new load of new t-shirts and some new colors. So go check that out. We'll ship anywhere in the world. We'll be psyched to see you in that gear. And uh, yeah, that's it. Keep it real. Thank you so much for your support. That's what makes all of this possible. And we'll see you on the next show. Cheers. Cheers.